Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of Back to the Blockbuster. My name is Gaius Bowling and I am actually flying solo on this one because um, I'm just going to talk about some of my memories with the movie that's actually celebrating uh, its 35th anniversary. I actually celebrated it on September 18th and that movie is a little supernatural horror film called Hellraiser released on September 18th in the States in 1987. It's a film written and directed by Clive Barker and produced by Christopher Figg, and it's based on Barker's 1986 novella, The Hellbound Heart. Um, It also marks uh, Barker's directorial debut, and it is a seminal um, horror film for a lot of uh, horror genre fans out there. It really kind of comes at a period in 1987 where some of the bigger franchises are starting to... um, a little long in the tooth so this is around uh the time i would assume so i think halloween 4 comes out in 1988 a year after this and then we have like the back end of the nightmare on elm street series with uh dream warriors and dream master um and then the friday 13 films are also going uh pretty uh, strong at that point but they're also kind of getting to the point where they had been around for so long that it was nice to kind of have this new kind of, uh, this new take on the genre that felt a bit more, uh, adult and, um, not as like franchisey or gimmicky, at least not quite yet. It would eventually become that with the release of several sequels. Um, but this first film is something that felt really different in the time. And I think it kind of continues to stand out more and more, uh, each passing year as a horror film that gets better and better with each viewing. Um, in case you guys don't know um, what Hellraiser is about, um, it involves a mystical puzzle box which summons the Cenobites, a group of extra-dimensional sadomasochistic beings who cannot differentiate between pain and pleasure. The leader of the Cenobites is portrayed by Doug Bradley and uh, would eventually become identified as Pinhead in all the sequels, but in the first film, he's just listed as Lead Cenobite. And um, even though um, Doug Bradley's Pinhead, or Lead Cenobite for this particular film, is featured heavily on the posters and all the uh, VHS cassettes and everything, you know, the Cenobites played a very small role in Hellraiser. Uh, The real villains of this piece, um, if you've seen it, of course, is a man named Frank Cotton, and uh, a woman named Julia. Um, but, you know, the the actual images of the Cenobites and, you know, um, their very distinct look made them very popular in 1987. And it also made uh, particularly Doug Bradley's lead Cenobite, uh, who eventually become known as Pinhead, um, made him prime to kind of lead uh, the franchise moving forward once it kind of became its very own kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street Friday the 13th or like Halloween. A um, little backstory, Hellraiser was filmed in late 1986, and Clyde Barker originally wanted the electronic music group uh, Coil to perform the music for the film, but on the insistence from producers, the film was rescored by Christopher Young. Now, this is um, a very, very important move. Even though um, Christopher Young used some of Coil's uh, themes and reworked some of them in the final score, Christopher Young's score for Hellraiser is probably one of the most distinctive things about the film. It makes it very big, very operatic. Um, It gives it a bit of prestige that really wasn't present in a lot of horror films. I mean, you can look at the score for uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, which is, you know, in a league of its own, it's very definitive. 
but there is just something a little higher class about the Hellraiser score. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily better than like the Halloween score or Nightmare on Elm Street or anything like that, but it does give the film a more distinct, more adult vibe that was probably missing from a lot of uh, horror films uh, kind of back in the day. Um, and, you know, quick little overview uh, since the release of Hellraiser. Um, the film is kind of been well, major critics have been divided on it. They've gotten they've grown a bit on it in recent years after rewatches, um, but it's received mostly uh, general like uh, pretty decent solid praise. Um, you know, uh, initial reviews range from Melody Maker calling it the greatest horror film ever film made in Britain, and then Roger Ebert, you know, the guy with the thumbs. Uh, he called it a bankruptcy of imagination. Um, so as you can tell, the critics were very um, divided on uh, this one uh, upon its initial release. And of course, uh, like most films that proved to be successful, it was followed by a lot of sequels, nine so far, and the first seven of which featured uh, Doug Bradley reprising his role as Pinhead. And we also have um, a reimagining coming to Hulu on October 7th, which released its trailer just this week. Actually looks pretty good. And I also hear that Clive Barker is involved with uh, a TV version as well for HBO Max. That was announced a long time ago. I don't know if that might have fallen into development hell with the whole Warner Brothers Discovery merger and everything. But I believe David Gordon Green was also involved with that too. Uh, David Gordon Green, of course, resurrected Halloween and gave us, you know, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills, and the soon-to-be-released Halloween Ends. And uh, he's also behind the uh, upcoming uh, Exorcist film as well. So if David Gordon Green gets to be involved in this Hellraiser series, he will have his hand in so many different parts of the horror genre. that, And that's kind of pretty unheard of, but it's actually pretty cool because he's done some pretty decent things so far with the Halloween film. So we'll see what he can do with a possible Hellraiser series and the other stuff he's working on moving forward. Um, the general plot of Hellraiser, um, basically a man named Frank Cotton in Morocco, he's he's a hedonist, and he buys a puzzle, puzzle box, and the puzzle box is, as he's told, is, opens the door to a realm of otherworldly pleasure. Um, when he's at home, in the attic, he solves the puzzle box, and all of a sudden these hooks and chains uh, emerge in the attic, and they begin tearing his flesh apart. And then a black robe figure, uh, which we will learn is eventually the least to the bite, uh, who will be known as Pinhead, resets the puzzle, and the room is restored back to normal. Um, later, uh, as we get out of that opening, uh, Larry's brother, Frank, is moving... Er, sorry, Frank's brother, Larry, is moving into the same house. And he intends to rebuild it um, because he is in a relationship with his second wife, Julia. Now, um, Julia, who is played by... Uh, Claire Higgins. I uh, actually want to uh, also give uh, Larry Cotton. Andrew Robinson plays Larry Cotton. Sean Chapman plays uh, Frank Cotton. And then uh, you'll learn later when Frank comes back uh, after he's resurrected. Uh, skinless Frank, or Frank the Monster, is played by Oliver Smith. Um, and then, of course, Claire Higgins, uh, who is amazing in this film, plays Julia Cotton. Um, Frank is unaware. We learn through flashbacks. Uh, uh, while they're in the house, that Julia had a sexual affair with his brother Frank before her wedding with Larry, and um, this is all kind of done in a really, like, really great sequence in the film where they're um, 
She's reliving uh, Frank coming to the house and Larry's not home. He's there to see his brother, but then he ends up seeing her. And she's kind of reminiscing about his first like sexual encounter with Frank. And at the same time, Larry and the movers are trying to move this bed up into the bedroom. And as the kind of the uh, intensity of the sexual encounter grows from her flashback, so does the intensity of uh, Larry trying to get this bed up the stairs. And eventually his hand is cut. Um while he's moving the furniture and his blood drips on the attic floor and what ends up happening unbeknownst to uh larry and julia at first is that um the blood dripping on the floor resurrects frank in a very ghoulish form he does not look like he did uh at the start of the film and eventually julia finds frank uh and despite what he looks like and you know what he needs from her she still finds herself a bit obsessed with him obsessed with uh this desire to be with him, because uh, it's clear that, you know, despite the fact that you kind of get the impression that maybe at one point she loved Larry, but that has kind of faded away because uh, either Larry's too boring or she needs, or she got this excitement with Frank that she couldn't get with Larry. Um, eventually, Julia agrees to help restore his body so they can run the way together. And the only way for them to restore his body is for Julia to pick up men, which she does in bars and bring them back to the attic, uh, so that Frank can drain their life, uh, which will regenerate his body. And um, Frank explains to Julia eventually about the stuff with the puzzle box and the things that he saw. Uh, and, you know, what the Cenobites kind of showed him uh, about all these carnal pleasures. Um, you know, he said that he desired pleasure, but the, when he saw the puzzle box, the Cenobites uh subject him to extreme sadomasochism uh, sorry um because it's clear that frank also dabbles in pain for pleasure and then they gave him that with uh the utmost intensity and you know that's what he kind of was going through while uh he was in this kind of dimension with them um also kind of going on in the other parts of the story is that Larry has a teenage daughter named Kirsty, who's played by Ashley Lawrence. And, um, you know, she, uh, you know, I, I want to give credit to Ashley Lawrence because I think when it comes to, uh, the final girls for a lot of these movies, Ashley Lawrence gets ignored a little bit. Um, because you know, she, I, you know, she doesn't have the same spunk as like a Heather Lane camp in uh nightmare on Elm street. You play Nancy, are um, this uh, instant vulnerability, like you want to care about them uh, thing that Jamie Lee Curtis has as Laurie Strode in Halloween. But there is um, something about her that is also very likable, though. And, you know, she uh, has to do a lot to kind of gain her sympathy a little early on because, you know, she's introduced to the few scenes early in the film and you know, and she's already already uh, kind of uneasy around Julia. They, you can tell that they have a very contentious relationship. And you know, eventually she will discover um, what Julia is doing. But they are there aren't a lot of scenes that kind of build up to um, Kirsty kind of being uh, the main focus of what's going to be happening in the later part of the film. But I think Ashley Lawrence does a good job of making you care about her and uh, giving uh, Kirsty a. You know, a bit of that final girl strength that we kind of want from uh, these characters in like uh, films like this. So, you know, eventually Kirsty catches Julia bringing a man to the house and follows her to the attic. And she also finds her uncle Frank there, who is, you know, definitely doesn't look like he did when she knew him back in the day. Um, 
she eventually sees that uh, he, she grabs hold of the puzzle box and she's that Frank really wants it. And she realizes that it's something that's very important to him and clearly he needs it. So she ends up throwing it out the window uh, and she's able to escape and she grabs the puzzle box and eventually she collapses from all like the trauma of everything that she's seen. And when she awakes in the hospital, she um, ends up summoning the syllabus while she's trying to solve the puzzle box. Um, and uh, this is when the lead syllabite, Pinhead, and probably one of their... Uh, it's the introductory scene, basically. You know, we do get to see them in the beginning a little bit, but this is the first time we see all of the Cenobites. Um in the scene, and it's probably one of the most, for me, one of the most iconic horror movie scenes uh, out there. It's just, uh, you know, a few minutes of, like, them explaining to her um, that they are perceived both as angels and demons, but they are simply explorers of another dimension, seeking carnal experiences, and they can no longer differentiate between pain and pleasure. Uh, they eventually uh, attempt to force Kirstie to return to their realm with them, but she informs Leeson about that Frank has escaped them, and that she could lead uh, them to him. And they agree to spare Kirsty and recapture Frank instead, uh, with the condition that Frank must confess to uh, escaping from them. Um, eventually, Kirsty returns home, and if, you know she finds that Frank and Julia have actually um, killed Larry, her father, but she doesn't know that at first. When she goes to the house, she's trying to convince her father, who she doesn't know is now Frank, because he's fully... Uh, rejuvenated after uh draining larry of his life um that you know frank and julia are trying to kill him and then eventually she kind of figures out figures out that you know they've killed her father and the man you know posing as her father is no other than her uncle frank um but um eventually um you know she, she gets frank to admit that she that he did escape the cinnabites and the cinnabites appear and they are not fooled by the deception of him looking like larry and, uh, the, you know, they eventually, uh, you know, tear, uh, Frank apart with, uh, these chains and like, it's a really intense horror movie scene. Uh, the whole like Jesus wept moment, um, towards the end of the film is a very, uh, I was looking on Twitter today, actually someone listed as one of their like, uh, profound, scariest movie moments, watching the chains like rip his kind of stretch his face apart. And they have him say Jesus wept before the uh, chains completely rip him apart. Um, you know, uh, eventually, though, uh, you know, they renege on their deal with Kirstie and they want to take her as well. Um, and, you know, uh, eventually, you know, Kirstie does uh, figure out how to solve the puzzle and send them all back to their dimension, back to hell. And, uh, and eventually uh, she throws the puzzle box into a burning uh, kind of fire. And uh, this vagrant who has been stalking Kirstie throughout uh, parts of the film walks to the fire and retrieves the box before transforming into a winged skeleton-like creature and flying away. And then eventually the box ends up with the same merchant who sold it to Frank at the beginning and he offers it to another customer, which kind of shows that this is an ongoing kind of cycle where uh, this merchant is you know, going to ask them, you know, what is your pleasure? And then once they solve it, the Cenobites will essentially give them what they want, but since they can't really tell the difference between pleasure and pain, uh, pleasure and pain anymore, um, the lines are very skewed as far as like what all these people's desires are. Um, just a little bit about how I first saw this movie. I was probably too young to see Hellraiser. Um, I was about maybe five or six 
And the only reason I did see it, because I used to peruse the horror movie section of the video store, and the VHS uh, copy has an image of uh, the pinhead on it holding the uh, puzzle box. And it's a pretty gripping image. Even if you're a kid, it intrigues you. You want to check it out. Um, I would say that, though, even though I watched horror movies pretty young when I was a kid, this one was probably one I shouldn't have uh, seen that early. It is... I mean, I guess by today's standards, it's not that gory, it's not that graphic, but, you know, 1987, and then, of course, seeing, I, I know I didn't see it in 87, it was, like, a couple of years after that, but as a kid, seeing some of the stuff in this movie is pretty uh, intense, it's uh, pretty graphic for a child to see, um, I know I, I might have snuck around trying to uh, watch this, because I remember being at the video store, not with parents, but with, like, friends, uh, you know, parents were watching us, but I was like spending the night at a friend's house and they were a little bit more open about like letting them rent whatever they wanted to rent. And that's how I um, saw it for the first time and um, definitely didn't understand a lot of the nuances in the plot in the story. Um, as I get older, though, the more I watch it, um, I mentioned this before, but Hellraiser has this kind of adult uh, spin on it that a lot of these films didn't have back then. You know, the whole... Um, notion of what we desire and pain versus pleasure and um all these things that like a lot of people try to hide away and not discuss because they're either ashamed about it or whatever i you know the movie is this kind of vessel like the the puzzle box is a way for all these people to really unleash these kind of carnal thoughts that they're having but um since you know the cinebites can't tell the difference anymore between what pleasure and pain is it evokes this kind of more intense uh, reaction, which is, you know, there, I think that it's easy to kind of view Hellraiser as this kind of gory, like, horror movie experience, but what I have liked about it so much, uh, you know, with each viewing, especially in recent years, is that it's a very smart horror film. It's uh, very much, you know, even though it deals with this otherworldly dimension and these beings from this dimension, it is grounded in a bit of reality, you know, like, the the story with, you know, the fact that um, we had the Cinnabites in here, and they, I know, like, through all the promotional materials, it seems like they're the villains, um, but Frank and Julia are the real villains in this film, and they're grounded in a bit of reality, even when Frank kind of comes back from uh, that other realm and is skinless and not himself, their motivations are grounded in reality, where you have a woman who's cheating on her husband with uh, his brother, and that is, you know, in its own, uh, <laughs> in its own twisted way, very messed up. Um, but you also have, you know, a woman who is bored, who is seeking something that she's not getting from Larry. She's getting this from Frank, and she's willing to go to all the necessary uh, means to achieve this kind of like pleasure or excitement that she's not getting from her own life. The fact that she's willing to even kill for Frank kind of shows what she's, uh, what she really wants. You know, this kind of mundane, like the life that she was going to live with Larry when they were moving into this house at first was, I feel like she was willing to accept it. But now that she has a way out, she's willing to take it. Even though at the beginning when she first sees Frank, she's shocked. Um, she kind of rejects it at first, but she is very quick to want to do this. Because, you know, of this one encounter that she had with him. And, you know, that's the crazy thing, too, is that this is one encounter that she had with Frank. And uh, it left something on her that uh, 
she couldn't really escape and it stayed with her and the fact that she's willing to up in her life for it you know these kind of things you kind of hear in like true crime stories like these things do exist where you know people get caught up in these like affairs uh you know and all that and affairs of the heart and everything and you know things start to go awry when they're like okay now this person that i'm with is in the way of like me achieving this new form of happiness and that is where julia is at now frank um frank is using julia like you learn you kind of see that later in the film too with how he uh how you know her part of the story is resolved in the end frank doesn't love julia but he knows that she's a means to an end and that he he's already convinced her to sleep with him when he first you know meets her and the fact that she's willing to do this for frank you know looking the way he is now and coming where he's com- coming from where he's coming from um he knows that he can manipulate her and that he can use her for his gain now if she was going to kind of still if there, if the complications with Kersey finding out wouldn't have happened, I'm sure they probably would have maybe gone off together and lived some kind of crazy, uh, crazy life. But I think the fact that Kersey gets involved and like now, like this person knows, and you know, there's all these other complications. I really think Frank was willing to do whatever he needed to do to uh, uh, to survive, basically, even if that was without Julia. Julia is a means to an end. Now, Julia in her own way, cares deeply about Frank, but it's clear that Frank doesn't really care about her. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the bare bones of the actual story. You know, this is a, you know, just like some backstory on, like, how it was made. The movie was uh, funded by New World Pictures for $900,000, so this is on the cheaper side of uh, horror movies. Uh, the, the film was originally made under the working title of Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. Um, and, uh, Clyde Barker also originally wanted to call the film Hellbound, but producer Christopher Fick suggested Hellraiser instead. Um, and I mean, it has, it's a much catchier title, I would say. And then, of course, with the sequel, they end up, uh, compromising because the sequel is called Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Um, so they, uh, ended up compromising a bit on that with the sequel. Um, and as far as the filming, Clyde Barker spoke very fondly about the experience uh in something called uh the hellraiser chronicles he said that his memories of the production were uh of unalloyed fondness uh and that the cast treated my ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving um he admitted that you know as a first time uh director that his own lack of knowledge on filmmaking and that you know that kind of had its issues but because he didn't know the difference between the 10 millimeter lens and 35 millimeter lens, but he kind of learned along the way and they were willing to kind of learn with him. Um, it's also interesting to note that um, after filming new world convinced Barker to relocate the story to the United States and make it more of a broader uh, film in the States. Cause this was a British horror film at first taking place, you know, in London. Um, but they told him to relocate the story to the United States. And that required um, him to overdub, and remove some of the English accents, which you can kind of see in the film. There is some overdubbing for some of the characters. Uh, you know, Andrew Robinson and uh, Ashley Lawrence are both American, so they use their American accents. And, of course, uh, Claire Higgins has already had an accent, so they will actually use hers because, you know, his Larry, it's, that's how he meets her. He meets her over there. Uh, but instead, uh, everyone else was uh, kind of overdubbed with uh, American accents to make them feel more accessible in the stakes. 
in the States. Um, Doug Bradley, who plays um, the lead Cenobite, like I said, you know, they play a very minor role in uh, this film, even though they're all over the promotional materials. Um, but talking about what Doug Bradley does with the part, there is a certain regal presence that he has as Pinhead. I wouldn't call it frightening, but it is imposing. And um, in his delivery of the lines, there's some really classic lines, you know, the whole, like, we'll tell your soul apart are uh, spare us your tears. It's a waste of good suffering. Like, you know, Doug Bradley delivers these lines, like, like on the Shakespearean level, which kind of, again, adds to the more, like, adult prestige thing that this uh, film has going for it. Um, you know, uh, I would say that, you know, given the minimal amount of screen time that he has and the other Cenobites have... Um, which I will also uh, kind of shout them out to. Nicholas Vince plays the chattering Cinnabite, uh, which probably is the most frightening looking one of, <laughs> of the bunch. Uh, Simon Banford uh, plays the Butterball Cinnabite, who's the heavier one a bit. And Grace Kirby is listed just as the female Cinnabite. Together, they look like a motley crew of horror movie perfection. They are like, they're the makeup effects on uh, these guys is very, very, very cool. Um, I. Um, I, it's probably one of the better horror movie creations to come about, and, you know, it's so distinct that even people who don't really know Hellraiser, they still know Pinhead, um, and that is, uh, a testament of what, you know, Clyde Barker and his team created, along with the amazing performances of the people who were playing the Cinebites, particularly Doug Bradley, who, of course, has become a horror movie icon because of, uh, this part. Um, the movie was heavily, I mean, we talked about the gore and everything. The movie was heavily censored. Uh, Clyde Barker had to make some cuts on the film after the MPAA gave it an X rating. Um, and some of the scenes that, uh, that were cut, uh, two and a half shots were, uh, removed from the first hammer murder, including a close up of the hammer lodged in the victim's head. This is when Julia, uh, is attacking the men to, uh, give to Frank so he can, uh, drain their life force. Um, another one, in the scene where Julia murders another man, the actor playing the victim felt that it made sense for him to do so naked. The nude murder scene was shot, but ultimately replaced with a semi-closed uh, clothed version. Uh, other scenes that were c- cut down, close-ups of Kersey sticking her hand into Frank's stomach, exposing his guts. This is when uh, Frank tries to attack her after she discovers uh, him and uh, her-, her father's house. And then there's a longer version of the scene where Frank is being torn into pieces by the Cenobite's hooks. Uh, the final shot where his head explodes and his brain messily splashes out was also cut so they can get an R rating. Um, in an interview for Sam Hain magazine in July 1987, Barker mentioned some problems that censors have with the more erotic scenes in the film as well, some of the sex scenes. And he said, well, we did have a slight problem with the eroticism. I shot a much hotter flashback sequence than they would allow us to cut in. Mine was more explicit and less violent. I'm talking about the... Uh, the flashback sex scene between Frank and Julia. They wanted to substitute one kind of undertow for another. I had a much more explicit sexual encounter between Frank and Julia, but they said, no, let's take out the sodomy and put in the flick knife. So the reference to the flick knife is that Frank has this uh, knife that he takes out to cut off uh, Julia's uh, top. Um, and he also uses it a lot in the film as well, and I'm guessing that there was a lot more sodomy and a lot less of the flick knife, so that also had to be cut down in in order for them to get an R rating. Um, 
And he also said that the seduction be- scene between Julia and Frank was initially a lot more explicit. He said, we did a version of this scene which had some spanking in it, and the MPAA was not very appreciative of that. He says, Lord knows where the spanking footage is. Somebody has it somewhere. The MPAA told me I was allowed two consecutive buttock thrusts from Frank, but three is deemed obscene and would get an X rating. That is how crazy uh, the MPAA is with some of this stuff. Um, so Hellraiser was released uh, to the public first at the Prince Charles Cinema on September 10th, 1987. Um, and then it was released in the United States on September 18th. Uh, it ultimately grossed uh, $14.5 million in the United States and Canada. And while that seems like it might be low, keep in mind that this movie was only made for $900,000. So this is actually a hit by, you know, in relation to uh, budget to final gross. Um, Hellraiser was also initially banned in Ontario by the Ontario Film and Video Review Board. By a 3-2 to two majority vote, the film was deemed... Um, not approved in its entirety as it uh, as it uh, goes against community standards. It was banned because of its brutal graphic violence with bloodletting throughout horror, degradation, and torture. In August 1987, Hellraiser was passed by the Ontario Film Review Board, but only after several cuts were made to the film. New World Mutual Pictures of Canada cut about 40 seconds to get the film passed with an R rating. 35 seconds of an extended torture scene featuring hooks pulling apart a body and face were removed, as well as a scene of squirming rats nailed to a wall. And that was all so everyone in Canada could see some version of Hellraiser. Um, Now, the critical response to Hellraiser, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag when it comes out. Um, You know, some reviews in the United Kingdom, like Time Out London, refer to the film as Barker's dazzling debut and said he creates such an atmosphere of dread that the astonishing set pieces simply detonate in a chain reaction of cognitive intensity and concluded that the film was a serious, intelligent, and disturbing horror film. Um, the Daily uh, Telegraph said that Barker has achieved a fine degree of menace. Uh, and like I said, Melody Maker uh, at the beginning of this uh, described it as the best horror film ever to be made in Britain. Um, uh, Kim Newman in the monthly film bulletin said that the film has a Seriousness and, uh, and seriousness and, stri- and striking aspect that was similar to the tone of A Nightmare on Elm Street or even the first Evil Dead film, um, and um, but did say that the, that the film suffers from a few minor compromises, notably a decision made fairly late in shooting to change the specifically English setting for an ambiguous and unbelievable mid-Atlantic one, and that is the change that they wanted to make to have the film take place in the States instead of Britain. Um, uh, Newman also noted that the Cenobites were well used as suggestive figures, but their monster companion is a more blundering, obvious concession to the gross-out taste of the teenage driving audience. Now, that monster they're referring to is another monster that's featured in the film um, that Kersey first sees when she opens the box in the hospital. Um, you know, as from a visual standpoint, uh, it's not like the best creation, especially compared to the Cenobites. Um, I think it's effective enough for something that was made in 1987, but it's not uh, necessarily the film's finest hour, but I also don't think it uh, hurts anything um, as well. Um, Now, in the United States, the New York Times um, (laughs) said that Barker cast singularly uninteresting actors while the special effects aren't bad, only damp. The Washington Post referred to it as a dark, frequently disturbing, and occasionally terrifying film, but also argued that Barker's vision hasn't quite made the conversion from paper to celluloid. 
there are some weaknesses, particularly the framing of close-ups and the generic score. God, I disagree on that. I think the score is great by Christopher Young. And he goes on to say, but there are some moments of genuinely inventive gore. The, he also states the film falls apart at its climax, degenerating into a surprisingly lame ending full of special effects and triumphant good. Now, Roger Ebert, we talked about his review um, earlier in this, but he gave the film one and a half stars out of four and deemed it as jury, as a jury piece of goods. Oh, wait. I'll say, let me start that over. At, he deemed it as jury, a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long, cold night. This is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. And that this is a movie without wit, style, or reason, and the true horrors that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. Have to disagree with Mr. Roger Eber here. He wasn't always right, particularly when it comes to horror movies. I respect that he loves stuff like the original Halloween. He's a big fan. He was a big fan of that. Of course, he's a big fan of Psycho. Also a big fan of Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. But with some other horror films, it seemed like he wasn't always consistent with his criticisms. Um... And I kind of feel that way a bit here. You know, of course, he's no longer going to wonder this, but I wonder how he would feel about looking back on this film like now compared to when he first saw it in uh, 1987. Um, Variety gave it a good review and said Hellraiser is a well-made, well-acted horror film and the visual effects are generally handled with skill. Um, You know, with all the uh, newer reviews that have come out since 1987, you know, with the Rotten Tomatoes and everything, Hellraiser is actually... Has a 72% approval rating based on 50 critic reviews uh, with an average rating of 6.5 out of 10. The consistency reads, elevated by writer-director Clyde Barker's fiendishly unique vision, Hellraiser offers a disquieting and sadistically smart alternative to mindless gore. And then in the early 2010s, uh, 2010s, Time Out conducted a poll with several authors, directors, actors, and critics who have worked within the horror genre to vote for their top horror films. And Hellraiser placed at number 80 on their top 100 list. Um, you know, in the wake of the film coming out, of course, it spawned several sequels. And I think the, you know, I, Hellbound Hellraiser 2... Not to get too in, into it because it's not that film's anniversary. It's fine. I think it has a similar distinct style to the original film. It kind of meanders on a bit. It is really gory. I think it's actually gorier than the original. Um, it is cool that Ashley Lawrence gets to be more center stage in Hillbound Hellraiser 2. And we do get more of the Cinebites. We don't get too much, which is good. We do get some a little bit of a backstory about how they came to be inside the box. At least some of them. especially Particularly uh, Doug Bradley's uh, Pinhead. Um, they're still not the main focus. They do get a bit more screen time. Um, one could argue that um, the sequel humanizes them a bit, and some people might think that's a detriment. Um, I don't in particular, especially if I just kind of view one and two as its own thing. I kind of feel like it's a nice little bookend to what we learn about them eventually in the sequel, that you know they, they were once people too, much like... Uh, Frank was before he got sucked into uh, their realm. So I actually think humanizing him a little bit didn't really degrade the fear factor. I think it just added a little bit of nuance to the characters. Um, the sequels after that have been uh, a wide range of so bad they're good to just plain bad. I think it's a, you know, we I've talked about what is the most inconsistent horror movie franchise. Other than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think Hellraiser is probably one of them. I don't particularly love 
a lot of the sequels after two. I can tolerate three. But after that, I kind of lose it a little bit. Um, Hellraiser Inferno um, is, which is actually directed by Scott Derrickson, who would go on to direct Doctor Strange and Sinister and the Black Phone, does have some interesting ideas, but I think that's because uh, Scott Derrickson had a lot to do with uh, the creative direction of, of that, and you can kind of tell he was going to, using some of these filmmaking techniques that he would expand upon and make better in some of his uh, future projects. But other than that, the sequels have all been a bit of a mixed bag. I've never really... Uh, it's never really lived up to the promise of the first two films, particularly the first film, um, at least for me. Um, the film, of course, like I mentioned earlier, in April 2020, it was confirmed that David Bruckner was going to direct a remake um, and that remake is actually, um, was acquired by Hulu in May 2021 and will be, uh, coming out, um, on October 7th, uh, on the streaming platform. The trailer came out, um, this week actually, and the trailer is actually pretty good. I'm actually looking forward, um, to, uh, what they do with it. I hope that it kind of, I guess you, like for me, you can't really go anywhere but up because the sequels aren't really that great. And like a reimagining of what Clive Barker did in 1987 might actually uh, be something worth uh, kind of exploring and looking into, I think. Um, but yeah, this is just like my quick little experience with Hellraiser. I, you know, it's the original is still one of my favorite horror films. It's one of the horror films that I think every time I watch it, I find more and more to like about it. Um, it's a really strong debut from Clive Barker, um, you know, and forever, you know, wherever the sequels gave us, if, it doesn't really diminish what Clive Barker was able to achieve with that 1987 film. It still stands up as a true standard of the horror genre. And um, I think he should be proud because, you know, 35 years later, I think it's still being rediscovered and still being looked at and dissected a bit of all its themes about, you know, pleasure and pain and sadomasochism and, uh, desire. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in Hellraiser that is a bit more than what's on the surface. And I think that is what makes it timeless because these themes still carry on today. There are a lot of people that are still kind of struggling with, you know, what is their true pleasure? What is their true desire? And Hellraiser makes you kind of look in the mirror and kind of see what that is. And it ha it's a very unflinching look into what um, that is. And I, I don't know. I just think that it still holds up 35 years later. Um, I would love to hear what you guys think um, when you guys hear this episode. This is actually my first solo episode, too. So I hope this actually went well. I hope it was uh, interesting enough for you guys. Um, as always, you can listen to Back to the Box back to blockbuster across all of our various podcast platforms including spotify uh, apple Podcasts, uh, google Podcasts, good pods or wherever you get your podcast fix and you know uh, as jack would say um i'm not as good as 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 he is so i'm just gonna say please uh do your homework assignment and if you have the time uh rate listen subscribe give us a review let us know what you want to hear uh let us know what you're enjoying let us know what you're not enjoying and um you know the back to boxer is also growing and evolving there's been a lot of changes and we'll kind of get into those next week but it's still something that is still really fun for us to do and these kind of special episodes kind of get us to break up from the monotony a little bit of just covering like the news so i really hope you enjoyed this kind of look back with me about my experience with hellraiser and um 
I hope it kind of allows you to reflect on your experience with the film. And uh, like I said, you know, it's, you know, look at it, look at it again, you know, with the lens of it being a 35 year old horror movie um, released in 1987 and look at it from that lens and just see how well it continues to hold up. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So until next time, guys, peace.